Up next is Safe Space. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about families and mental illness. I'm going to be speaking with Cheryl Ramsey about her two sons who have mental illness. And the backdrop for this is that in the history of psychiatry, there was a time, not so long ago really, where mothers were really blamed for schizophrenia. In fact, there was a term, the schizophrenogenic mother, as if it was all the mother's fault for her child's uh, severe illness. So in the face of that, Cheryl Ramsey's had the courage to be here and to teach and speak out about mental illness. We now see it so differently, but there's still a long way to go. Cheryl Ramsey is the development assistant for the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in Maine. We call that NAMI. Cheryl teaches in their Family to Family course, a 12-week course for families with someone with mental illness. She and her husband have three children, a daughter and two identical twin boys, now men, who have mental illness, the, the two sons do. Scott, who has schizophrenia and lives here in Maine, and Derek, who has an undiagnosed mental illness and also struggles with addiction. Welcome to Safe Space, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about, I don't, I don't want to leave your daughter out, but I am going to focus on your sons. Tell me a little bit about who they are separate from their illness. Well, they were very effervescent boys before onset of addiction or mental illness. They were exuberant. They were passionate in their happiness and their joy and passionate in their anger and everything else in between. And they... They had a lot of friends. I'm talking past tense because that's really how it has become. They had a lot of friends. My son Scott loved to play golf and fish. Both of them loved to fish and played soccer and sports. I coached them uh, in basketball and soccer, and we and they they just were joyful, mm. is the way that I would describe them before onset of any of this stuff. So. They sound like regular boys. When did you start noticing something that wasn't quite right? When they were 13, entering middle school, they, they started experimenting with drugs. They, were, they weren't doing it regularly, but we were concerned. And they became more and more engaged in using drugs and alcohol as they, you know, 14 and 15-year-old rolled uh, ages rolled around. And we, with Scott, he would definitely be the one that I would say we saw, started seeing signs first. It was always easy for us to blame it on the alcohol or the drugs. And drugs, I mean marijuana. Uh, they weren't using any of the heavier drugs, but that was, that was enough for us, uh, especially with my husband being a police officer. So he started showing uh, signs of anxiety when he was 15. And I remember the day, actually, it was September 12th, 2001, uh, when he had his first real anxiety attack. And I took him to the doctors. And that was when he, uh, the doctor prescribed him. It wasn't a psychiatrist. It was his um, primary care physician. And uh, prescribed him his first medication. And things went downhill from there. So 
So the medication did not help him? No, no. Um, by the time he was at the end of his sophomore year, we found out that he had started cutting. And and then the subsequent two years, he he had about nine hospitalizations and 20 trips to the emergency room. This is while he was still in high school? This was while he was still in, hus- in high school, yeah. What a frightening time. So, yeah, yeah, it was horrible. It was, and we did not know what was happening, really. Like I said, we blamed it on the substances. And even though we knew he was in distress, he would come home from school and be in such distress and saying the kids were all talking about him and his friends. And and I would just try to calm him down and not really understanding. In hindsight, I think it's pretty clear, but I did not understand what was happening. And our mantra seemed to be, if you just stop, you know, using the substances, but he wasn't always using. So it it was a very chaotic time for him and, and for our family. So, Of course, it's really striking that his first anxiety attack is the day after 9-11. Yeah. Um, so he's feeling, I mean, this national trauma. Everybody was so distressed that day. Yeah. When you look back on that, do you feel like that had a sort of a trigger effect for him somehow, the, the deep anxiety of, of such a catastrophic thing happening? You know, I thought about that, but I have not concluded that. It might have set off that particular one event, but not all the subsequent years that we've, now that he's 26. I mean, this was 11 years ago, so. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like he, he started out anxious, and then he kind of became progressively paranoid. It really focused on people talking about him. Yes, yeah, and... um Definitely progressively paranoid and extreme anxiety. He And there were times when he would ask if I had said something, and I didn't. I hadn't said anything. And again, in hindsight, I'm thinking that he had started hearing voices. Uh, so... You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. So, but even if you had just say you'd known that, which of course a lot of people wouldn't, what would you have done differently? Do, do you do you worry that that would have made a difference? I, I do worry about that. You know, I'm, I guess I'm always questioning. I think I'll always question, always. I think you know we did. We were doing so much in that time. We, we were doing so much for both boys. We were had them in substance abuse counseling. Uh, my other son had gotten in trouble with the law. Derek had gotten in trouble with the law, and he was in drug court. And Scott became a part of that process as well. They were getting, we were getting family support services, counseling services, and we were doing so much. But I don't know if any of it would have changed the outcome of where he's at today and in his illness. There is evidence of the, you know, catching... You mean like if you if you identified early and treat it early? Exactly, identifying it early and mm-hmm. um, uh, and getting the treatment. You know, prodromal symptoms and and we we had him in counseling and the counselor had said to me this program in Portland called the Peer Program and we came we actually came down and um, tried to get him into it, but he had already been on an antipsychotic, so it was too late to even try to get the early intervention. So Yeah, so the peer program is a program here in Portland that is working with often teenagers as they show the first signs of psychotic illness, but before they've really already been on medicine and they're trying to work at prevention. 
I see. So you tried so hard and he didn't qualify. Right. That, was that really a, a blow? Yeah. Yeah. It was, nothing has worked. I mean, bring it right up to the present. Nothing has, has worked in terms of his treatment. So it's all been a blow. <laughs> it's all been a blow. So. Yeah. I'm thinking, there you are. He's in high school. He's in the hospital in and out nine times. Usually the sad truth is you don't get in the hospital unless there's actually real life-threatening danger. Was was there time? Were there times when he became threatening to you or when that was really frightening for his life? It was always... It was always on him. He, he, um, as I said, he's he started cutting and he he cut very deeply, or it started surface cuts, but then it started very deeply, and he started cutting on his legs, and he would use a serrated knife, and so that when we'd make the trip to the ER, he'd be ha- having stitches, and and because of those attempts, then that's that would force the hospitalization. So. And was he able at that time to tell you why he was in such anguish? Was he able to say that he was afraid that something was happening in his own mind, or was it was he not able to sort no. of observe it like that? No, it was he was he has never been able to observe it like that. Nor does he even now. He you know he does not. Um, he's not able to say that he's hearing voices or but he he responds to the stimuli mm-hmm. that's happening in his brain uh you know 100% of the time so i see so you can see that he's responding to other sounds always but he, always mm. yeah so there's so much loss here for you loss yeah yeah that's one, been one of the huge lessons that loss comes in all forms he he had been accepted to college even during all of this these two years of chaos for him and hospitalizations, and he still wanted to go to school. He had he had applied to Johnson State, and he got in. And then with events that happened, we ended up having to send him away in his senior year of high school to a program in Massachusetts, and he never did graduate with his class, and he never did go to college. And when he actually, when he came, became 100% substance-free, is when his illness really started presenting itself. So in some um, ways it got worse when he got cl- yeah, clean exactly. and sober. When he stopped self-medicating. Exactly. Which is pretty powerful, right? Because that's what yeah. people say is I take these drugs because they help me feel better. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways that actually seems like it was true for him. It, it definitely was I, that's, yeah. That's did some part of you think? Well, then go back and keep using them. I mean, no, no mother, <laughs> of course, wants to ever say that to their I child. Know, I know. You you wonder. Uh, well, it's striking wonder. because your other son also self medicates. He self medicates exactly, and whereas they're both on two ends of the spectrum, really, where Scott was became so sick, but was always compliant. Was always. Compliant. I don't know if I really like that word, but he cooperative. He would, he would exactly. Thank yes. you. Yeah, that's a much better. And he's always been, for the most part, cooperative. And and his illness has just declined from from the start of his symptoms to where he's at today. And which I said is, you know, he responds a hundred percent of the time to the stimuli and there is no engagement with him. You can't have a conversation, you know, no more than 10 seconds with him. 
and he's no longer the person at all what he was before the start of his illness. Whereas his brother is has a lot of symptoms, um, does not recognize that he has anything wrong. He might say that he has anxiety, but he's self-medicating with alcohol for the most part and has never been able to stay drug-free for, you know, eight years, I think, now. So, And can you have a conversation with him? You can have a conversation with him. They're not great right now, but uh, he's... We've seen a decline in him in the last year, thinking that he's has the start of a psychotic illness. I'm not really sure what it is. Actually, right now, as we speak, he's on a behavioral health unit in Washington, D.C. So, yeah. So, and it's been such a long haul. Been a very long haul. And it's, and it's very interesting because it's so frustrating with Derek because you can have the conversation, but you really can't because he's angry at the at the world. And what I think is happening with him is he's experiencing things in his brain. Uh, he's Things are happening, but he he's aware enough and he's scared and he's lost his brother. And so, so much of that comes into where he's at. So. I imagine he's terrified of being... Becoming his brother. Correct, yeah. yeah. So one can understand why he might want to disavow the whole mental health scene. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's terrifying, and it, has, it hasn't seemed to have really helped him. It, has, it hasn't. He's not willing to get the help either, so uh, he fights it. He fights it all the time. So I want to backtrack for a minute because you said to me that, you know, you and your husband really were completely naive to mental illness before all this happened and had your own set of preconceptions about mental illness, what it was, and sort of who were the kind of people that happened to. And I wondered if you might tell me a little bit about your own your own learning about that and how your ideas about that have changed. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, it's like so many things in our lives. If we haven't experienced it, it's really not on our radar screen. And and that's what mental illness was before, for me before this happened to us and before we started understanding what was hap- happening to us and getting educated. We, you know, my husband even being in law enforcement deals with, dealt with um, a lot of people who have mental illness. But I think we always kept it a step away. And so between our lack of knowledge and understanding and, and then that, that you know, this doesn't happen to us. We're raising our kids. We're very involved, and I, I coach my kids, and, you know, we do all the family things, and, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't happen to us until it did. And and I'm that is one thing that I'm really grateful for, actually, in this experience, that I feel like my eyes are wide open now, and um, I wouldn't trade that, those lessons for the world. It's been a process of uh, educating myself, taking the NAMI, the family to family course in 2005 when when Scott really uh, first started becoming really sick, uh, helped a great deal. And um, how, how did it help? What do you mean? It helped, and it's you know it's 101. It's mental illness 101, and you learn so much information. Number one. How it really helped was I'll never forget walking into the first class, and I'm still at this point of you know 
mental illness. Somebody had mentioned schizophrenia to me, and, you know, I remember crying to my best friend, you know, how can this be? And uh, not having anyone else in my world, you know, have not having anybody else with that same experience. So I really felt alone, and I think that's how so many family members feel. And I walked into that class, and there were 15, 20 people there, and I'm like, wow, these people are all experiencing the same thing that we are? I really had no idea. And then through the you know, the process of the twelve week course you really hear get you get to hear people's stories and it was it was amazing in that that moment, you know, to just know that I was not alone anymore and that there was a place to get support. I think you can feel so supported just by knowing that you're not alone. And that was the greatest thing that I along with, you know, the education, what it did for me. Were there ways that for you, you know, you said you didn't know anyone who had this experience. Did you struggle with feeling embarrassed to tell people what was going on? Were you hesitant to share your own experience? Um, that's a good question. I don't, I don't feel like I was. If anything, it might have been more because of my husband's job and the boys had been in trouble a lot with the, Derek in particular with the law. And so from that perspective, I think that was hard. The mental illness piece, I think that because I was naive, um, that's how I look at myself. And and at the time, Scott was getting um, starting to get services. Um, we got connected with Shalom House, which is where he lives now. And I was I was a person who did whatever somebody suggested. So you know, we suggest you get them on disability or we suggest you you do this course of treatment or that course of treatment. And, and I think that worked well for me. You know, it's just because I didn't know what I was navigating through and then I, we did a lot of, we took the guidance that people were offering us and that was helpful. One of the things that I hear frequently in my own work is uh, from family members is that when they're when the person gets hospitalized, and I understand Scott's been hospitalized many times, that there's this unfortunate disconnect that that guidance that you said you got from the Shalom people that that isn't always their experience in the hospital. And I, I'd love to hear what it's been like for you as a as a mom. Do you feel included by the mental health professionals? Do you feel like decision making is really shared and you're included, or what has that been like for you? That's been off and on, I would say. He had two really lengthy hospitalizations at Riverview, and although I was I was part of the treatment team and there were meetings every two weeks, that was really my only involvement with his hospitalizations there. I think the clinicians have, for the most part, my experience I think has been good, actually, based on compared to some horror stories that I've heard. I have made it. I, I am his guardian, so, so I they have to. Talk I, to you. Yeah, ah, yeah, that and helps. that that was you know that's been only for the last couple of years. I did find when he was an adolescent, I was certainly more involved. Kind of the same thing because you're the guardian. It's that abyss when you're when they're able to be there to take care of themselves and their own health care. That I find that clinicians. Some really care and some, some not. So the balance is 
I would say for me the scales have tipped on I've had we've had really good providers for for our own experience. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, I that is our experience. So, um, one of the really difficult things, of course, is that HIPAA, which is the Privacy Act, makes it so that clinicians cannot talk to the family unless the patient agrees. And if you're the guardian, then they then that problem is yes. gotten around. Yes. Um, and that so that's something really powerful there. Do you advise other parents? If it's appropriate to to get guardianship precisely so that they can be more involved? When it's appropriate, I I would. It has made that whole process easier, you know, between the releases. And it's not an easy thing to get, and it shouldn't be. Why don't you explain what does it mean to be his guardian? It's really taking um, control of his whole being, if you will. It's being able to make all of his decisions it's being his decision maker of, of his life, and uh, whether that's health care, any kind of care. So, so that's a huge thing. To it wasn't an easy thing for me to do, knowing what I was doing, and that was really difficult. There's been a lot of difficult decisions that I've had to make make in this whole process with both boys. You know, from you know from making them homeless, so to speak, so they'll get services. Tell me about uh, that. It's well, just recently with with Derek while being in the hospital in Washington D.C. You know, they they asked the question, Will, "Can your son go back home with you?" And we have reached the point in this journey where he can't come back home with us. He's been at our home for so many times and it hasn't worked. And and it's such a hard decision to make as a mom. It you know, it's it's kicking your kid out on the street. And I I had an aha moment where. Being in the behavioral health unit is so different than being in an ICU. If he had been in an accident in Washington, D.C., I would have been on the first plane there. But the nature of these illnesses, the nature of the just the hospital itself, the unit, and the journey that you've been on all lead you to have to make choices that you never thought you would have to make. I'm also hearing that actually in making him homeless, he actually gets more services than he would yeah. otherwise, which is sort of a heartbreaking trade-off, but it, it sounds it like. Is. Yeah, it is. And and it's also, you, you learn that if you just, I can't make him well, he has to, he has to do it. And it's, uh, it's, it's hard. It's been very difficult. We have time for one more question, and I want to ask you about actually about your own aging and how you think about your kids. They will they will outlive you, presumably. One always hopes that, and yet every parent that I know with a child with some kind of severe mental illness has this worry because you're you're so even though you didn't fly right down to Washington, yeah. it's clear that you're very involved and concerned, and you're sort of a home base of emotionally. And is that something that's been a struggle for you and your husband, sort of thinking about the long-term future and how they'll be and how to kind of think about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a real concern. We're we're less concerned with Scott because he is he lives in the group home. He has twenty-four-seven care. That was a, another hard decision to make. So he has care, and that's comforting to know that. With Derek, it's. It's definitely a struggle. I don't want his sister to have to assume that responsibility. And I'm just 
I think we're just sitting here with our fingers crossed, hoping that he will he will have a moment of awareness. I think that is often so often that the issue is that this sibling ends up becoming the guardian. Yeah. And it's a it's a huge job. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge job. I want to just close by asking if you could say a little bit more about NAMI in case there are people that are listening that would like to take that family-to-family course. How could they find out more about it? Uh, well, NAMI Maine has a website, uh, org, and the classes that happen all around the state. And so on, if you go to the website, there would be um, under the education tab, there would be all the classes listed. Certainly can call NAMI Maine and get information on that as well as a plethora of other information so for support. The, what's and, the phone number? Uh, 622-5767. Okay, so 622-5767 if you want to call. And what is the address for the website? NAMI Main, N-A-M-I Main dot org. Great. Cheryl Ramsey, I want to thank you so much for being my guest and for being willing to share this story with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. My thanks, too, to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or if you want to email the link to a friend, please go to our website, which is www.safespaceradio.com. You can also sign up there to get a weekly email with an announcement and a link to that week's show. You can also download the show from iTunes if you want to play it on your smartphone when you're driving to work. And uh, you can like us on Facebook. Coming up next is The Watchdog.